In August of 1985, which I realize is long before some of you were born, uh, Sherry and I packed up a U-Haul and left Deerfield, Illinois, heading for the West Coast. We went to Bellingham, Washington, where I served as the director of a college ministry there, and both of us for the next 10 years uh, were involved in college ministry. So, as I said, that was 35 years ago. I have been involved in active ministry as a pastor or in some other capacity since that time. I have to say, this is the most confusing, unsettled, uh, unclear, vexing moment to try and provide pastoral leadership of some type. Now, personally, that's not the case. Uh, we are doing well, and our boys are doing well, and so it's not, it's not as challenging of a moment, personally, as it is, in one sense, professionally. Uh, now, to be clear, I, I, I actually increasingly am hopeful that what God is doing is sort of uh, something that is going to unsettle people and draw people to himself. I think by any objective standard, it's becoming obvious that 21st century Western secularism is not working. We are far too limited. We are far too broken. We are far too small to try and control the things and to have the easy life that we sort of expected. So I think there's great opportunity there. But this is a challenging moment, and it's challenging to try and figure out how to live and how to think and everything that is going on. So stepping back for that, from that for a second, let me remind you. We're in a series looking at the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, the, the New Testament opens with four sort of biographies of the life of Jesus. It's, it talks about the birth, the life, the teaching, the example, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call these the Gospels. And then we have, uh, after the Gospels, we have the book of Acts, which starts with uh, the birth of the church, and, and it gives us the next 30 years. As the church grows from this little group uh, to, to increasingly becoming a force, and then it's growing like a brush fire, and it spreads from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other, uttermost parts of the world. Well, at the end of the New Testament, we have the book of Revelation, which is what we're in right now. And John, this is, this is in the 90s. John's an old man. He's been banished to this island in the Aegean Sea. He's having a, a devotional time in the morning, and he gets swept up into heaven. And he sees the risen Christ. And while he is uh, there, he is given some things to write down, and, and that makes up the book of Revelation. Well, between the end of the book of Acts and the beginning of the book of Revelation, there are 21 letters that make up most of the New Testament. Most of these were written by Paul. Some were written by Peter and John. We got one written by James. In addition to these 21 letters, so there's 27 books in the Bible, 21 of them are letters, but in the book of Revelation, at the very end, there are these seven letters, and they're not from Peter or Paul or James or John, they're from Jesus. And the first one we saw was directed to the major city of Ephesus, and it's a big church, and, and Jesus says to them, I, I love the way you're working and serving. I love uh, your doctrinal purity. I'm excited about your tenacity and perseverance, but I have this against you. You have lost your passion for me. You have lost your first love. 
and you've got to get it back. And so I challenged you to write a letter, a love letter to God. Last week, we looked at this small church that was in the town of Smyrna, and it was struggling, and it was barely getting by, and the people were suffering. And Jesus writes to them, and he says, you're doing it right. I am so proud of you. I am encouraged. Hang in there. I know it's hard. I know you're suffering. The fact is, it's actually going to get harder for you, and some of you are going to die, but Hold fast to me. Follow me. I promise you the rewards in eternal life far eclipse anything you can possibly imagine. So today we're looking at the church in Pergamum. And uh, this is the next, uh, the next town up on the route. Now, we have, uh, I have some pictures of Pergamum. And so this is from the ruins down here. This is at the bottom of the mountain. This is Pergamum up here. These were baths or sort of a pool area. And then this up here on this hill was this ancient town of Pergamum. And, and right here, if you can see, is the theater, which looked like this. It was a theater that, that held about 10,000 people and it was built into the side of the hill taking advantage of the natural acoustics. This is what's left of the temple to Trajan, who was, had been an emperor. So there's, we've got this imperial cult where you're worshiping Caesar, either when he's alive or after he dies. And so uh, this town, Pergamum, which is modern-day Bergma, uh, this town was a provincial Roman capital. And so you had lots of influence from Rome. This is uh, the pathway leading to the medical facilities. So uh, Pergamum is, is known uh, for, for being sort of like the Mayo Clinic of its day, although they used a lot of snakes. Um, there's a guy, this story is told, this guy, they thought he had died and uh, he's bitten by a poisonous snake and he comes back to life and this sort of sets them on this path of thinking that you know, modern med or medicine is all about snakes. Now, before you're, you're, you scoff at them too much, when I was a child, I remember my mom taking me to the doctor and I'm, I'm trying to learn to read and, and so I'm paying attention to signs and I go, we're not going to the guy with the snakes, are we? And my mom says, you didn't have any snakes. And I go, well, look at his door. He's got a snake. What's with the snakes? And she's like, I have no idea. Uh, well, as it turns out, and by the way, here's the new uh, AMA logo for all you docs. Still have snakes. Uh, so as it turns out, uh, snakes were, were prominent then, uh, and, and it factors into the logo. So I am not showing you, I should, um, I should, I'm not showing you, by the way, the library because the ruins of the library are, are pretty insignificant. But the library at the time was massive and uh, the second largest library in the world. And there was a rivalry between the library in Alexandria and the library here in Pergamum. And it's, it's like, it's town pride. And so the people in Pergamum tried to recruit the head librarian, like a franchise quarterback, and get him to come to Pergamum. And it makes the king of Alexandria so mad, he locks the, the, the chief librarian in jail so he can't get out. And he banishes the sale of papyrus, which is what they made paper out of. Uh, he banishes the sale of papyrus to uh, to. Pergamum, but the, the people in Pergamum actually learn how to then write on animal skins, 
Pergamum and Charta, a Greek word. Per, Pergamum and Charta go together. You get parchment, which is what they were writing on. And, and the stories of the library go on. Mark Antony decides at one point to make a gift, another gift to Cleopatra, who he had just married. He gives her all the books, all the scrolls at the library in Pergamum. So all 200,000 of the, of the scrolls are taken by the emperor. Uh, so the library was a big part of what was going on. Uh, I'll, I'll just show you one other thing here. So we started in Ephesus, and, and this, we're, we're going to follow the mail route. Okay, so Ephesus, then we went up to Smyrna, Pergamum, and then next week will be Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and it ends in Laodicea. So all of that to say, um, people talking about Pergamum today, the commentators in the book of Revelation, will often suggest that it was a bit like Washington, D.C. So Ephesus is, is this big commercial center, so they go, Ephesus is New York or L.A. Smyrna is this cultural center where the church struggles, so they go, you know, think maybe uh, San Francisco. But Pergamum, because it had this provincial capital of Roman, all these Roman uh, uh, civil authorities, so all this Roman government, uh, they compared to Washington, D.C. I think you could actually make a case that Pergamum is also like the northern suburbs of Chicago. So you've got a library. So you've got education. You have got a theater. You've got culture. You have got a medical facilities. You've got big pharma. <laughs> Now, it's not a perfect story because the other thing about Pergamon that you've got to understand in order to appreciate what the Christians there were up against is that it also had all these temples. I showed you the temple to Trajan, but it had a number of other temples to other gods. And in, in the fertility cults that were common back then because they're trying to, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to excite the gods, uh, there's just a lot of sexual corruption and a lot of prostitution in these temples. And so it's a little bit more like Vegas, perhaps, than it is like Washington, D.C. or like Chicago. But um, it's a significant place. And the important thing for us to understand is that the letter that Jesus writes is commends them for their faithfulness in so many ways. But he also challenges them because they acclimate. They are buying into the, the ideas and the thinking of their city. And uh, uh, Richard Niebuhr, a prominent 20th century theologian who actually went to Elmhurst College here, not far from, uh, not far from us. Richard Niebuhr uh, famously said, look, when it comes to the, the church and the, and the state or the church and culture, you've got uh, the, the church against culture and you've got the church of culture and you've got the church above culture and you've got the church in paradox with culture and you've got the, the church transforming culture. You've got these different responses. The, the knock against the people in Pergamum is that they were acclimating to the culture. They weren't transforming it. They were being transformed. It wasn't, the problem ultimately wasn't that they were in Pergamum. The problem is that too much of Pergamum was in them. So with that said, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, begin reading in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. So this, again, is standard opening for all the letters. Angel is the messenger, perhaps the mail carrier. We're not sure what, 
specifically, but to the angel of the church of Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So this is Jesus, right? It always starts by saying, here's where it's going, and it's from Jesus. And, and there's some military language and illustrations used here. We don't often think of Jesus in a military sense. We're getting a lot of military imagery, but we also are getting some symbolism here. Remember, there's always some way that Jesus is perfect for this area. So because Pergamum was this Roman provincial capital, the, the leader of Pergamum had what they called the power of the sword. He had the ability to put people to death. He controlled capital punishment. So when we talk about Jesus, uh, the sharp double-edged sword, there's obviously some reference to the fact that the word of God is, he, in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the words of Jesus are the words of God. And so you've got that imagery here. But you've also got this idea that, okay, I know where you're at. That This proconsul has got the sword, <laughs> but don't worry. Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword. He's stronger than this guy. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, when someone says, I know where you live, that can sound like a threat. Like, you know, I can come after you. And when they say, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, that would seem to suggest you're hanging out in the wrong places. But that's not what's going on here. Uh, the throne of Satan, by the way, is generally understood to be this, the, the temple to Trajan that was at the very top of the hill. Uh, we saw some of the ruins there. Yet you remain true. I know you're in a difficult place. I know that the area that you are living in is a hard place to be a Christian. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So Antipas is the only martyr that we get a name for from the seven churches. At some point in the past, Antipas was killed, uh, but the people in the church remained faithful to Christ. By the way, a little bit of a knock on uh, the Roman government if their city uh, where their, their offices are is where Satan lives. So Jesus is commending them. They're in a difficult spot, and they've remained faithful. Nevertheless, okay, you're doing some things right. However, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So, um, so uh, Balaam is a complicated figure in the Old Testament. We read about him in the book of uh, Numbers. Uh, and in chapter 25, the king of Moab tries to, um, well, he doesn't try. He recruits Balaam, <clears throat> who's, a, who's a prophet. He's not a follower of, of God, but he recruits Balaam, who's got these supernatural gifts to curse people. And these curses come true. And so the king of Moab is looking at the, at the Jews moving through the desert. This is at the end of their wandering 40 years in the desert. And he wants them to go away. He's scared they're going to come settle next to him or they're going to kick him out. And so he, he pays Balaam to curse uh, the, the Jews. And Balaam takes the money, but then he can't curse them. He keeps trying. Seven times he tries. He opens his mouth to curse them, and instead he blesses them, <laughs> which is very confusing. By the way, 
I, I sort of feel like I know what that's like because when I was recovering from the dissection and the stroke, there was, there was a couple months where I uh, would fall down. I mean, for, for six months, I had virtually no balance, but for two months, I was falling down to the left all the time. I could not help myself. And so they would say, okay, Mike, we've got you. We want you to fall to the right. We're going to catch you. You're going to fall to the right. You're going to throw yourself to the right. Throw yourself to the right. And I would fall to the left. I couldn't do it. So Balaam is trying to curse. Uh, he's trying to curse the Jews. He can't do it. Every time he tries, he actually affirms them and blesses them. And some of these become messianic prophecies. So at some point, he says to the king uh, of Moab, look, I'm sorry, I can't do it. But here's what you could do. You could pay some foreign women to go into the camp and seduce the men and bring their worship of their false gods in with them. And so now, as opposed to it being an attack from outside on the Jews, the attack is actually coming from the inside. Nevertheless, I have this against you, and likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about this group. We think they're sort of anti-clerical, so against the priests, but we're not completely certain. But uh, again, they're, they're not doing everything right. Uh, repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So more military language. And uh, he's calling on them to repent. So, please note, this call to repent is big. This call to, to turn around, to have a change of heart, to have a change of mind, to confess sin and move in the other direction, to ask God for forgiveness this is, uh, this is a big theme in the Bible. It's big in the Old Testament. We see it start in the New Testament with John the Baptism, or John the Baptist who has a baptism of repentance. Jesus follows, and in Mark, uh, excuse me, in 1 John, we read that Jesus began his ministry by telling people to repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 6, we see that he sends the disciples out uh, two by two, telling people that they need to repent. There are lots of passages throughout the Bible in which we are told that we need to own our sin, we need to confess our sin, we need to ask for forgiveness. And not just that, that's, that's not all that repentance entails. We, we are to have a change of direction, a change of heart and mind, and move in another direction. Now, we're focused on repentance in this service. We're going to end with a prayer of repentance for several reasons. First of all, it's, it's in the text right here. As a matter of fact, five of the seven churches are told by Jesus to repent. There's two churches that aren't doing anything wrong. All the other churches that are doing something wrong are told to repent. Secondly, the second reason we are going to uh, have a prayer of repentance at the end is because this, uh, at sundown, uh, on Sunday, begins Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar and which is the day of atonement and repentance. It's the day that Jews will fast and pray and repent. And because of Yom Kippur and because of everything that's going on, uh, across the country, a whole bunch of churches have joined together to say this is Repentance Sunday. Worked out a God thing on our on our 
in our situation in that it was part of the text. Uh, I didn't have to change the text at all. We are called upon to repent. And so there's a movement saying, look, uh, clearly God has our attention. He's getting it. Uh, I mean, how much more needs to go on for us to say that I, we need to humble ourselves and repent and call on the Lord and he will heal our land. So um, we're going to end with a prayer of repentance for individual and corporate sin. Now, I think that this call to repent comes at a great time. Uh, as I've said, it's getting our attention. It lines up with Yom Kippur. It's in our passage. But I just want to take a little bit of a time out from the text and say, I am aware that there are people who are a little skittish about the idea of repentance right now, especially of repenting for any corporate sin, any societal sin. So let me acknowledge that there are loud voices uh, on, on all sides, especially on the fringes that have made um, thoughtful conversation about many of the issues going on today, in particular race, but lots of the issues today, made it very difficult for us to have thoughtful conversations. Let me also remind you that uh, shortly after uh, George Floyd's death, I preached three messages uh, called Now What? Like, how do we respond? And in the, the first message, I said, look, racism is, is evil. Racism is a sin. The problems we're facing are bigger than we think. We have no choice but to reform. Violence is wrong and that the church needs to step up. I then went on to, to say, I, I'm, I'm issuing a plea. And the letters PLEA were for P was for prayer, L was for listening, E was for engaging in conversations, and A was for acknowledging any guilt. So those sermons drew a fair bit of email. In particular, my comment, my suggestion, when I said the problems are bigger than we think, my suggestion is that, that there are broken systems and broken structures. Uh, this led many people to say, I cannot, uh, I can't go there. So, look, what I argued then and what I argue now is that we live in a broken world, we are broken, and some of the, the structures that we set up are broken. And some of those structures, some of those systems uh, end up favoring some people or they allow, and this is the way it's made the most sense to me, they, they, have, they have provided some invisible privileges to people in the majority culture. And uh, so I said, look, I don't buy everything that everyone is suggesting goes uh, in particular with white guilt. I, I, I can't go there. But given that Daniel owned the sins of his people, Daniel is the only major figure in the Bible, with the exception of Christ, that we see no sin for. But he prays a prayer, he prays a prayer of confession on behalf of his people. Given the family culpability that, that goes to Achan for his sin, given what Paul writes about the fall of humanity and our, our common uh, suffering because of our common guilt in Romans 5. Given all these things, they said, look, I, I think we are called upon to have hearts of ongoing repentance. And I also think that as Westerners, we tend to think much more individualistically than, uh, than the Bible does. So um, let, me, let me just share with you one thing to wrap this up. Uh, what I shared with those with some of those who wrote to me uh, to interact on this. Because I've, I've taken this 
whole plea thing very seriously. I've been involved in lots of discussions, trying to listen, reading books on all sides of this issue. I'm in various meetings, two or three a week, trying to listen and to understand what's going on and to figure out the way forward. Um, my goal, what I've tried to say to people is my goal in all this is not to find some compromise. My goal is not to find some middle ground. My goal isn't to try and, you know, uh, find a way forward for society. My, my goal is never to line up with the elephant or with the donkey. It's to follow the, the, the sacrificed lamb. And it's to move forward. I don't think Jesus sort of, you know, buys into the two-party deal. That's not the way he responded to this. So my goal is not to find a balance between left and right. It's to do what is right. And one of the things that the Lamb of God tells us to do in five of the seven letters to the churches, not just to individuals, but to the churches, is that we are to repent. And so uh, we are going to uh, end our service today with a time of repentance. But let me go on reading. <clears throat> Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's note, to those who have ears, be sure that you're listening. The suggestion here is that not everybody that has ears are using them to hear. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give some, that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So he says this. Again, this is a standard format. Each of the letters, he's, he's you know, it, it's to the angel of this church, and then he's identifying himself, and then he's saying there's some commendation, something that they're doing right, provided that they are. There's some correction. Then there's some bigger picture about how you've got to do the right thing and then there's some promises about what will happen so here he says to those who are victorious to those who persevere to those who stand strong to those who continue to follow Christ I will give some of the hidden manna obviously there's clear symbolism here the manna that was given to the Jews when they were in the in Egypt Jesus is the bread of life and so that all ties together I also give that person a white stone <laughs> with a new name written on it. Now, I have to say, I have found more theories about what this white stone is than perhaps I have found on any other passage of the Bible. Uh, there's just not a lot of understanding about what this is, so everybody's got an idea. The two that, that got my attention... So, it, it's some high-end Roman social events... If you got invited, you would get a, an invitation that was on a piece of stone, and the invitation was carved into this stone, and so you had a ticket, and only those who had the white stone invitation were allowed in. Others have, have either made a lot of the fact that the stone is white, suggesting purity, or they've said there's a new name written on it. Now, the name may just be Christian, but the name could be a, a new name that God gives to you that only you know which suggests a growing intimacy between, uh, between his followers and God. We don't, uh, we don't actually know. So, um, look, let me, let me draw this to a close and set up our, uh, our time of repentance. If we step back from the text, what we find is that um, this church is being commended for being faithful during a time of persecution and suffering. And it is a church that is warned 
for the way it has been compromising with the area around it. There's a sense in which the church in Pergamum does the exact opposite of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is doctrinally pure, but it's lost its passion. It's, it's not engaged in loving God. It's, it's, the church in Pergamum seems to be following God. It's doing some of that right, but it has lost its way doctrinally. And we need both. As I said, the church, in, the problem ultimate problem is not that the church in Pergamum is in Pergamum. The problem is that too much of Pergamum is in the church. So 20 years ago, I I preached on this passage. Uh, I was a new associate pastor part-time at Christ Church. And, uh, And Bob Thomas was the pastor, and he was doing this series on the seven churches, and I was assigned the church in Pergamum. And I remember that because I was brand new and I wanted to do a good job and so I ended up trying to figure out, so in what ways is the church today likely to acclimate to society? And I ended up spending a lot of time reading about tolerance because tolerance was uh, changing. So uh, I noted that... um, uh, that the, the, the new cardinal sin of the moment, this is, again, this is 20 years ago, so uh, 1999, uh, the, the cardinal sin of the moment was to be intolerant. And tolerance was the cardinal virtue. Um, but the definition of tolerance was changing. So it used to be that to tolerate something meant you disagreed with it, you didn't like it, but you were allowing it. But the definition was now changing, and that was not, you had to affirm everything. You couldn't not like it and allow it. You had to affirm it. I noted that uh, those who were advocating for tolerance were very intolerant of those that didn't like their definition, their new definition of tolerance. I went on uh, to note that the list of things that we were expected to tolerate kept changing. And then finally I said, all of this is problematic for Christ's followers, not just because we have sort of an eternal uh, law, but also because we're not called to tolerate those, those people that we disagree with. We're called to love them. <laughs> Tolerance is not, is not strong enough. So that was 20 years ago. Things have changed. And tolerance is now out. Um, as has been noted, not simply by Christian writers, not simply by uh, conservative cultural commentators, but by liberals increasingly. Um, perhaps most eloquently, Jonathan Haidt, uh, a, a, he would describe himself as a liberal, secular, Jewish atheist. He's a professor uh, in New York. And he writes about the increasing uh, intolerance or the increasing illiberalism of liberalism. Uh, Some of the loudest voices today are committed to shutting down any voice they disagree with and to demanding an end to free speech. There's a growing movement um, that says there are all kinds of things that can never be voiced because they threaten other people. And a growing group of people who should never be heard from. Far from tolerating those we disagree with, uh, what we're being told is that we should silence them or cancel them. 
Now, I don't think the thrust of this text is on cultural exegesis. I'm not going to head down that path. Uh, certainly not now. I do think there are things going on. I, in my Friday update this past week, I referenced a number of articles to critical theory, not so much critical race theory, which many people are talking about. I've been trying to understand what critical theory is because I think it is sort of, the, in one sense, the new tolerance. It's the new worldview that is shaping things. But that's not what this passage is calling us to, right? Again, this passage is saying, look, you've got to be uh, on guard. You cannot allow your worldview, your life view, your understanding of what, of what matters and how to live to be shaped by the culture around you. It needs to be shaped by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. It needs to be shaped by Him. And that starts with hearts that are soft and repentant. So um, I'm going to pray for us, give you an assignment. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we are going to, campus pastors are going to pull things back together, and we're going to have a time of reflection and repentance. So your assignment from me is a third letter. So the first letter was a love letter to God. Uh, that was out of Ephesus. The second letter, Smyrna, was to write to somebody who was suffering. Uh, now your assignment is to write a letter to yourself. It's, it's to write a letter uh, to your future self. So it's to, it's to look ahead and to say, here I am right now. What are the things that I think God is calling me to? What will it look like to be faithful? What will it look like to be true to the things that he is calling me to? And if you give us that letter, if you address it, you know, put it in an envelope, a self-addressed stamped envelope and give it to us, we will mail that letter to you in the future. Again, not the gist of the text, but we're trying to make much about this idea of letters and how important they are. Obviously, these letters from Jesus are enormously important. May they shape us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you do know. We thank you that you do see. We thank you that you are not uh, a high priest who does not understand the challenges that we face, but that you understand them better than we understand them. And so we pray, Lord God, um, for the kind of wisdom and the kind of courage and the kind of tenacity uh, that allows us to navigate the challenging moments we find ourselves in. There's a sense in which we are the church of uh, Ephesus. Not that much of a sense that we are the church of Smyrna. Some, though, are suffering, clearly. We're, we're perhaps more like the church of Pergamum than the others uh, so far. So we don't want to be like Ephesus uh, in the downside, uh, we want to have a passion for you, and we don't want to be like uh, the Church of Pergamum in the downside. We don't want to acclimate and just become uh, like the culture and drift downstream. We do want to be like the Church of Ephesus that is doing good work, that is doctrinally pure, that is tenacious. We want to be like the Church of Smyrna in the ways they are. We want to be like the Church in Pergamum in the sense that we are faithful to you and we stand strong to you. Guide us to that end. We ask for your blessing as we prepare to soften our hearts and to repent. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.